0: Section 13 of Beacon Lights of History, Volume 2, Jewish Heroes and Prophets, by John Lord. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by K. Hand. Elijah, Part 1. Ninth Century B.C. Division of the Jewish Kingdom. Evil days fell upon the Israelites after the death of Solomon. In the first place their country was rent by political divisions, disorders, and civil wars. Ten of the tribes, or three-quarters of the population, revolted from Rehoboam, Solomon's son and successor, and took for their king Jeroboam, a valiant man who had been living for several years at the court of Sishak, king of Egypt, exiled by Solomon for his too great ambition. Jeroboam had been an industrious, active-minded, strong-natured youth, whom Solomon had promoted and made much of the prophet ahijah had privately foretold him that on account of the idolatries tolerated by solomon ten of the tribes should be rent away from the royal house and given to him the lord promised him the kingdom of israel and if he would be loyal to the faith the establishment of a dynasty a sure house jeroboam made the choice of shechem for his capital and from political reasons for fear that the people should according to their custom go up to jerusalem to worship at the great festivals of the nation and perhaps return their allegiance to the house of david while perhaps also to compromise with their already corrupted and unspiritualized religious sense he made two golden calves and set them up for religious worship one in bethel at the southern end of the kingdom the other in dan at the far north it does not appear that the people of israel as yet ignored jehovah as god but they worshipped him in the form of the same egyptian symbol that aaron had set up in the wilderness a grave offence although not an utter apostasy moreover this was the act of the king rather than of the priests or his own subjects stanley makes a significant comment on this act of the new king which the sacred narrative refers to as the sin of jeroboam the son of Nabat, who made israel to sin he says the golden image was doubtless intended as a likeness of the one true god but the mere fact of setting up such a likeness broke down the sacred awe which had hitherto marked the divine presence and accustomed the minds of the israelites to the very sin against which the new form was intended to be a safeguard from worshipping god under a false and unauthorized form they gradually learned to worship other gods altogether the sin of jeroboam the son of Nabat, is the sin again and again repeated in the policy half worldly half religious which has prevailed through large tracts of ecclesiastical history for the sake of supporting the faith of the multitude lest they should fall away to rival sects false arguments have been used in support of religious truths false miracles promulgated or tolerated false readings in the sacred text defended and so the faith of mankind has been undermined by the very means intended to preserve it for priests jeroboam selected the lowest of the people whoever could be influenced to offer idolatrous sacrifices in the high places since the old priests and levites remained with the tribe of judah at jerusalem these abominations and political rivalries caused incessant war between the two kingdoms for several reigns the northern kingdom including the great tribe of ephraim or joseph was the richest most fertile and most powerful but the southern kingdom was the most strongly fortified and yet even in the fifth year of the reign of rehoboam the king of egypt probably incited by jeroboam invaded judah with an immense army including sixty thousand cavalry and twelve thousand chariots and invested jerusalem the city escaped capture only by submitting to the most humiliating conditions the vast wealth which was stored in the temple the famous gold shields which david had taken from the syrians and those also made by solomon for his bodyguard together with the treasures of the royal palace became spoil for the egyptians this disaster happened when solomon had been dead but five years the solitary tribe left to his son despoiled by egypt and overrun by other enemies became of but little account politically for several generations although it still possessed the temple and was proud of its traditions after this great humiliation, the proud king of Judah, it seems, became a better man, and his descendants for a hundred years were, on the whole, worthy sovereigns, and did good in the sight of the Lord. Political interest now centers on the larger kingdom called Israel. Judah for a time passes out of sight, but is gradually enriched under the reigns of virtuous princes, who preserved the worship of the true God at Jerusalem. Nations, like individuals, seldom grow in real strength except in adversity the prosperity of solomon undermined his throne the little kingdom of judah lasted one hundred and fifty years after the ten tribes were carried into captivity yet what remained of power and wealth among the jews after the rebellion under jeroboam was to be found in the northern kingdom it was still exceedingly fertile and was well watered it was a land of brooks of water of fountains of barley and wheat of vines and fig-trees of olives and honey It boasted of numerous fortified cities, and had a population as dense as that in Belgium at the present time. The nobles were powerful and warlike, while the army was well organized, and included chariots and horses. The monarchy was purely military, and was surrounded by powerful nations, whom it was necessary to conciliate. Among these were the Phoenicians on the west, and the Syrians on the north. From the first, the army was the great power of the state, its chief being more powerful than Joab was in the undivided kingdom of David. He stood next after the king and was the channel of royal favor the history of the northern kingdom which has come down to us is very meager from jeroboam to ahab a period of sixty-six years there were six kings three of whom were assassinated there was a succession of usurpers who destroyed all the members of the preceding reigning family they were all idolaters violent and bloodthirsty men whom the army had raised to the throne No one of them was marked by signal ability, unless it were Omri, who built the city of Samaria on a high hill, and so strongly fortified it that it remained the capital until the fall of the kingdom. He also made a close alliance with Tyre, the great center of commerce in that age, and one of the wealthiest cities of antiquity. To cement this political alliance, Omri married his son Ahab, the heir apparent to the throne, to a daughter of the Tyrian king, afterwards so infamous as a religious fanatic and persecutor under the name of Jezebel, one of the worst women in history. On the accession of Ahab nine hundred and nineteen years before Christ, the kingdom of Israel was rapidly tending to idolatry. Jeroboam had set up golden calves chiefly for a political end, but Ahab built a temple to Baal, the sun-god, the chief divinity of the Phoenicians, and erected an altar therein for pagan sacrifices, thus abjuring Jehovah as the supreme and only God the established religion was now idolatry in its worst form it was simply the worship of the powers of nature under the auspices of a foreign woman stained with every vice who controlled her husband for ahab himself was bad enough but he was not the wickedest of the monarchs of israel nor was he insignificant as a man it was his misfortune to be completely under the influence of his phoenician bride as many stronger men than he have been enslaved by women before and since his day Ahab, bad as he was, was brave in battle, patriotic in his aims, and magnificent in his tastes. To please his wife he added to his royal residences a summer retreat called Jezreel, which was of great beauty, and contained within its grounds an ivory palace of great splendor. Amid its gardens and parks and all the luxuries then known, the youthful monarch with his queen and attendant nobles abandoned themselves to pleasure and folly, as Oriental monarchs are wont to do. It would seem that he was unusually licentious in his habits since he left seventy children afterward to be massacred the ascendancy of a wicked woman over this luxurious monarch has made her infamous she was an incarnation of pride sensuality and cruelty and with all her other vices she was a religious persecutor who has had no equal we may perhaps give to her as to many other tiger-like persecutors in the cause of what they call their religion the meagre credit of conscientious devotion in their cruelty for she feasted at her own table at jezreel four hundred priests of baal besides four hundred and fifty others at samaria while she erected two great sanctuaries for the phoenician deities at which the officiating priests were clad in splendid vestments the few remaining prophets of jehovah in the kingdom hid themselves in caves and deserts to escape the murderous fury of the idolatrous queen we infer that she was distinguished for her beauty and was bewitching in her manners like catherine de medici that italian bigot whom her courtiers likened both to aurora and venus jezebel like the florentine princess is an illustration of the wickedness which is so often concealed by enchanting smiles especially when armed with power The priests of Baal undoubtedly regarded their great protectress as one of the most fascinating women that ever adorned a royal palace, and in the blaze of her beauty and the magnificence of her bounty were blind to her innumerable sorceries and to the wild license of her life. The fearful apostasy of Israel, which had been increasing for sixty years under wicked kings, had now reached a point which called for special divine intervention. There were only seven thousand men in the whole kingdom who had not bowed the knee to Baal, and God sent a prophet, a prophet such as had not appeared in israel since samuel more august more terrible even than he indeed the most unique and imposing character in jewish history almost nothing is known of the early history of elijah the bible simply speaks of him as the tishbite one of the inhabitants of gilead at the east of the jordan he evidently was a man accustomed to a wild and solitary life his stature was large and his features were fierce and stern his long hair flowed upon his brawny shoulders and he was clothed with a mantle of sheepskin or haircloth and carried in his hand a rugged staff he was probably unlearned being rude and rough in both manners and speech his first appearance was marked and extraordinary he suddenly and unannounced stood before ahab and abruptly delivered his awful message he was an apparition calculated to strike with terror the boldest of kings in that superstitious age he makes no set speech he offers no apology he disdains all form and ceremony he does not even render the customary homage he utters only a few words preceded by an oath as jehovah the god of israel liveth there shall not be dew nor rain these years but according to my word what arrogance before a king elijah an utterly unknown man in a sheepskin mantle apparently a peasant dares to utter a curse on the land without even deigning to give a reason although the conscience of ahab must have told him that he could not with impunity introduce idolatry into israel elijah doubtless attacked the king in the presence of his wife and the court to the cynical and haughty queen born in idolatry he probably seemed a madman of the desert shaggy unwashed fierce repulsive to the israelitish king however with better knowledge of the ways of god the prophet appeared armed with supernal powers whom he both feared and hated and desired to put out of the way but elijah mysteriously disappears from the royal presence as suddenly as he had entered it and no one knows whither he has fled he cannot be found the royal emissaries go into every land but are utterly baffled in their search the whole power of the realm was doubtless put forth to discover his retreat and had he been found no mercy would have been shown him he would have been summarily executed not only as a prophet of the detested religion but as one who had insulted the royal station he was forced to flee and hide after delivering his unwelcome message and whither did the prophet fly he fled with the swiftness of a bedouin accustomed to traverse barren rocks and scorching sands to a retired valley of one of the streams that emptied into the jordan near samaria amid the clefts of the rocks which marked the deep valley did the man of god hide himself from his furious and numerous persecutors he does not escape to his native deserts where he would most probably have been hunted like a wild beast but remains near the capital in which ahab reigns in a deeply secluded spot where he quenches his thirst from the waters of the brook and eats the food which the ravens deposit amid the steep cliffs he knows how to climb the bravest and most undaunted man in israel shielded and protected by god was probably warned by the divine voice to make his escape since his life was needful to the execution of providential purposes He was the only one of all the prophets of his day who dared to give utterance to his convictions. Some four or five hundred there were in the kingdom, all believers in Jehovah, but all sought to please the reigning power, or timidly concealed themselves. They had been trained in the schools which Samuel had established, and were probably teachers of the people on theological subjects, and hence an antagonistic force to idolatrous kings. Their great defect in the time of Ahab was timidity. There was needed someone— who under all circumstances would be undaunted and would not hesitate to tell the truth even to the king and queen, however unpleasant it might be. So this rough, fierce, unlettered man of few words was sent by God, armed with terrible powers. It was now the rainy season, when rain was confidently expected by the people throughout Palestine. Yet strangely no rain fell, though sixty inches were the usual quantity in the course of the year. The streams from the mountains were dried up, the land, long parched by the summer sun, became like dust and ashes. The hills presented a blasted and dreary desolation. The very trees were withered and discolored. At last even the sheltered brook failed from which Elijah drank, and it became necessary for the man of God to seek another retreat. The Lord therefore sent him to the last place in which his enemies were naturally searched for him, even to a city of Phoenicia, where the worship of Baal was the only religion of the land as in his tattered and strange apparel he approached sarepta or zarephath a town between tyre and sidon worn out with fatigue parched with thirst and overcome with hunger everything around him being depressed and forlorn the rivers and brooks showing only beds of stone the trees and grass withered the sky lurid and of unnatural brightness like that of brass and the sun burning and scorching every remnant of vegetation he beheld a woman issuing from the town to gather sticks in order to cook what she supposed would be her last meal to the sad and discouraged woman doubtless a worshipper of baal the prophet thus spoke fetch me i pray you a little water in a vessel that i may drink and as she turned sympathetically to look upon him he added bring me i pray thee a morsel of bread in thine hand this was no small request to make of a woman who was herself on the borders of starvation and of a pagan woman too but there was a mysterious affinity between these two suffering souls a common woman would not have appreciated the greatness of the beggar and vagrant before her only a discerning and sympathetic woman would have seen in the tones of his voice and in his lofty bearing despite all his rags and dirt an unusual and marked character she probably belonged to a respectable class reduced to poverty by the famine and her keen intelligence recognized at once in the hungry and needy stranger a superior person even as the humble friar of Palos saw in Columbus a nobleman by nature, when, wearied and disappointed, he sought food and shelter. She took the prophet by the hand, conducted him to her home, gave him the best chamber in her house, and, in a strange devotion of generosity, divided with him the last remnant of her meal and oil. It is probable that a lasting friendship sprang up between the pagan woman and the solemn man of God, such as bound together the no less austere Jerome and his disciple Paula. For two or three years the prophet dwelt in peace and safety in the heathen town, protected by an admiring woman, for his soul was great if his body was emaciated and his dress repulsive. In return for her hospitality, he miraculously caused her meal and oil to be daily renewed, and more than this he restored her only son to life when he had succumbed to a dangerous illness, the first recorded instance of such a miracle. THE GERMAN CRITICS WOULD PROBABLY SAY THAT THE BOY WAS ONLY SEEMINGLY DEAD, EVEN AS THEY WOULD DENY THE MIRACLE OF THE MEAL IN OIL. IT IS NOT MY PURPOSE TO DISCUSS THIS MATTER, BUT TO NARRATE THE RECORDED INCIDENTS THAT FILLED THE SOUL OF THE WOMAN OF SEREPTA WITH GRATITUDE AND WONDER AND WITH BOUNDLESS DEVOTION. VERILY I SAY UNTO YOU, SAID A GREATER THAN ELIJAH, WHOSOEVER SHALL GIVE A CUP OF COLD WATER IN THE NAME OF A PROPHET SHALL IN NO WAY LOSE HIS REWARD. HER REWARD WAS IMMEASURABLY GREATER THAN SHE HAD DARED TO HOPE. She received both spiritual and temporal blessings and doubtless became a convert to the true faith tradition asserts that her boy whom Elijah saved whether by natural or supernatural means is alike indifferent became in after years the prophet Jonah who was sent to Nineveh in all great friendships the favors are reciprocal a noble-hearted woman was saved from starvation and the life of a great man was preserved for future usefulness austerity and tenderness met together and became a cord of love And when the land was perishing from famine, the favoured members of a retired household were shielded from harm, and had all that was necessary for comfort. Meanwhile the abnormal drought and consequent famine continued. The northern kingdom was reduced to despair. So dried up were the wells and exhausted the cisterns and reservoirs that even the king's household began to suffer, and it was feared that the horses of the royal stables would perish. In this dire extremity the king himself set forth from his palace to seek patches of vegetation and pools of water in the valleys, while his prime minister, Obadiah, a secret worshipper of Jehovah, was sent in an opposite direction for a like purpose. On his way, in the almost hopeless search for grass and water, Obadiah met Elijah, who had been sent from his retreat once more to confront Ahab, and this time to promise rain as the most diligent search had been made in every direction but in vain to find elijah with a view to his destruction as the man who troubled israel obadiah did not believe that the hunted prophet would voluntarily put himself again in the power of an angry and hostile tyrant yet the prime minister having encountered the prophet was desirous that he should keep his word to appear before the king and promised to remove the calamity which even in a pagan land was felt to be a divine judgment elijah having reassured him of his sincerity the minister informed his master that the man he sought to destroy was near at hand and demanded an interview the wrathful and puzzled king went out to meet the prophet not to take vengeance but to secure relief from a sore calamity for ahab reasoned that if elijah had power as the messenger of omnipotence to send a drought he also had the power to remove it moreover had he not said that there should be neither rain nor dew but according to his word so ahab addressed the prophet as the author of national calamities but without threats or insults art thou he who troubleth israel elijah loftily fearlessly and reproachfully replied i have not troubled israel but thou and thy father's house in that thou hast forsaken the commandments of jehovah and hast followed balaam He then assumes the haughty attitude of a messenger of divine omnipotence, and orders the king to assemble all his people, together with the eight hundred and fifty priests of Baal, at Mount Carmel, a beautiful hill, sixteen hundred feet high, near the Mediterranean, usually covered with oaks and flowering shrubs and fragrant herbs. He gives no reasons. He sternly commands, and the king obeys, being evidently awed by the imperious voice of the divine ambassador. End of section 13